0: Uh, my name is Jesse, and uh, I'm, I'm honored to to be able to share uh, with you from the word. I'm, I'm, I'm not really going to apologize for what I'm about to say, but really I had like four sermons and I couldn't whittle it down, so we're going to do all four uh, in, in about 30 minutes. So I promise to keep on time, but we're going to be moving really, really fast um, because I want to I make one point extremely clear, um, and it just so happens to be the same point that we sang in those songs, and that is this, Jesus is worthy of our worship. Despite any of the miracles that he's done, just because of who he is, he's worthy uh, of our worship and, and so much more. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to begin in chapter 2. Uh, and then we're going to look in chapter 3, <laughs> and then we're going to look in chapter 4. I promise not to go through the whole book of John, but we're going to be looking at all of this at one time. Let me, let me set up a little bit of uh, where we're at in John before we read the, the passages. Uh, the beginning of chapter 2, uh, Jesus is invited to a party, which is nice, um, and it's a wedding. It's a wedding at Cana. We, we, John documents this as the first miracle that Jesus does, because somewhere in the wedding they ran out of wine, and so Jesus turns the water into wine, and the scriptures uh, write that this this is the first sign that Jesus did. But you can imagine a lot of people heard what Jesus did there, and it's like, oh, that's that's amazing. Let's I want to hear more about who this man is. Um and then it says uh in verse 13 uh that Jesus goes and he flips the tables in the temple. So he went from being like the most popular guy to everybody's like, hey, hang on, hang on just a second, why, why are you flipping our temple our, our, our tables? Um and, and in that passage, uh they ask him, like uh the the it says that the the Jews that were there, they after he flips the tables and everybody kind of takes a step back. He like releases the doves and the lambs are like, they're leaving the temple grounds. And they say, Hey, Hey, uh, Jesus, excuse me. Uh, just one moment. Can you give us a sign, uh, to show us that you are who you say, or you have the authority to do this thing that you're saying. And Jesus kind of looks at them and says, well, if you kill me, I'll come back to life in three days. How's that? Uh, And they're like, no, I don't understand. And they they kind of freaked out. Uh, They thought he was talking about the temple, but uh, he was uh, clearly talking about his body. Now I want to read this in verse 23, because after Jesus flips the the tables and and you have this moment, we see something about Jesus that I've missed every time I've read it. I I have a degree in studying the, the Bible. I've spent a lot of my adult life trying to figure this out. I don't know how many times I've read this. I've missed this every time. This is why I'm like so geeked out on this. It says in verse 23, it says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, so he's just flipped the tables and now they're going to have the Passover feast. It says, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And I've always read that as a positive thing. John intends us to read this as a negative thing. That They, they, they were so impressed with the things that Jesus was doing that they were like, I want to hang out with the Jesus who can do magic tricks. I want to hang out with the Jesus who can do miracles. I want to hang out with Jesus because of what he can do for me, not because of who Jesus was in reality. It says, it says that uh, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And then immediately following this, John, the author of this, he gives four stories of where Jesus knew exactly what these people needed to hear from him. And how they did business with the Jesus who knew the heart, knew everything that was inside of them, knew exactly what their motivations were. If, if you're like, if right now, if you're, you're starting to gloss over because you're like, good night, this guy, I'm just visiting and he says he's going to do four sermons at once. And you're, you're like on the way to, to, to checking out. I, I would just tell you, Jesus is greater than the miracles and he's greater than the things that he's done for you and the greater than the things that he's done for your family. Jesus is worthy, independent of anything he's ever done, but certainly in addition to, but he's worthy of our worship and he's worthy of our honor. He's worthy of our allegiance to him. So um, the, the stories are this, uh, beginning in chapter three and, and rolling into four, uh, you have the story of Nicodemus. You have, following Nicodemus, uh, an interaction with John the Baptist. You may recognize that name. Um, Following John the Baptist, you have, uh, in John chapter 4, the woman at the well in Samaria. That's the third of the stories. And then the fourth story is Jesus. He's traveled back from Samaria, from Jerusalem. He's traveled back to Cana, where he did that miracle with the water and the wine. He's back in in that city, where he's a celebrity. Um, And you have the official's son, who is a neighboring town. He's like, my my kid's going to die, and I need need some help. And I would like to teach those or from those four passages a little bit out of order, if you'll bear with me. But uh, if if you would look in John 4, and uh, I'm going to start in 46. 46. So Jesus, remember, he, he's, he's, uh, he's turned water into wine in Cana, and now he's gone back to Cana. And it says in verse 46, so he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made uh, the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Uh, pause for a second. Does anybody know, just off the top of your head, the distance from Cana to Capernaum? Neither did I. I didn't know. And so when I don't know something, I just Google it. Uh, I Googled distance from Canada to Capernaum, and it popped up Google Maps, which is interesting because these are still physical places. It is about 35 kilometers away, uh, and that was, uh, it had like car ride, and it had like the route you would take in a car ride, but because it's Google Maps, you can press the little walking man, and it'll tell you how long it took to walk, which I'm guessing homeboy didn't have a Buick, so uh, I'm thinking he walked this, and it's seven hours away. This guy, he hears through the grapevine, that Jesus is back in that town where he turned water into wine, seven hours away, and he decides, i got to go talk to this guy. Why? The scripture says, uh, because the son was ill. This guy, a government official, John says, we don't know his name, we don't know what he was, but he is is not poor, he is not uh, dumb, he is not uneducated, but he's scared to death because the son is about to die, and he heard Jesus was seven hours away, and so he takes off. And he goes and he meets Jesus. It says in verse 47, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him seven hours of walking. It's fascinating to me how often scripture like fast forwards the amount of time. Can you imagine that walk for a second for seven hours? So right now it's 10 o'clock. So 7 p.m. tonight you would be arriving if you took off right now for the same walk. And from now until 7 p.m. tonight, the last thing you thought is my kid's about to die. Um, I don't, I don't know how this is going to turn out. What if he ignores me? What if he doesn't like seven hours of just like letting that story unfold in your head? But he took the walk and he says, he came and he asked him, uh, to come down and heal his son. He goes to Jesus. Like Jesus, please come with me. Seven hours away. I I think you can heal my son. Come, come heal my son for he is at the point of death. Verse 48, so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Uh, Jesus has uh, a little bit of a frustration uh, because he, he's here to do more than the miracles. He's here to do more than the signs. And he's like, hey, are you just asking for another sign or another wonder? It says in verse 49, the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Like the first the respect, but also the desperation. Jesus has had people following him around. Uh, before he did those signs in Canaan, when he flipped the tables, everybody was like, hey, you're a celebrity, Jesus, let's And Jesus, he pulls away from them. He doesn't want to be a part of that. He doesn't want to be famous for the sake of being famous. And then he hears the desperation in this government official's voice. And he's like, I'm not asking for a sign. I'm not asking you to prove who you are. My kid's about to die. And I just, uh, please, will you come? Will you come with me? Verse 50, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And so it it says immediately after that, that the official believed Jesus for his word. Not because of what he's done. He's still seven hours away. He doesn't see his son. But it says the government official believes Jesus for the word that he said. And he turns and he walks heading back home, the seven hour walk. And when he's about halfway, someone meets him and says, hey, your kid got better. It's amazing. So when did my kid get better? Oh like three and a half hours ago. And he remembers then, that's right when Jesus said that. What kind of man can from seven hours away just announce, I'm healing your son? Seven hours away. And it was like, I don't know, what is that? Oklahoma, I don't know what the distance is from here, <laughs> like seven hours away, a man is healed, and, and it says that he believed Jesus for his word, and then when he got there and he saw the miracle, he tells everybody, and everybody in his household and himself believed Jesus because of his word, not for the actions, but because this man has the power and authority. Okay, so uh, that's the fourth of the the four characters. I want to rewind. I want to look back at John 3, uh, and we see Nicodemus. Um, By the way, uh, has anybody here watched the TV show Chosen yet? Anybody checking that out? If you've never heard of the show Chosen, I highly recommend it because Nicodemus gets like three pieces of scripture, but the show Chosen kind of follows all these Bible characters, and they really flesh out Nicodemus' character. I think they did a great, great job with it. So remember in chapter three, I'm, I'm teaching this out of order a little bit, but uh, Jesus has just flipped the tables and everybody's like, hey, show us a sign. He's like, well, if you kill me, I'll come back in three days. And they didn't want any part of that. And so they just let him go. Uh, it says in ver- chapter three, verse one. Now there was a man of the Pharisees, So he was one of the ones who were there named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you are a teacher from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so he says to him, I've heard the stories of what you've done. I've seen some of the stuff that you've done. None of us, us Pharisees, uh, or us churchy people, doubt that God actually sent you. We just don't know what we're supposed to learn from you yet. Like, what, what are you doing? Like, what does this mean? We know that you're from God because no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And then Jesus answered him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, uh, remember, uh, John has told us, Jesus already knows what's in the heart of man. Nicodemus did not ask him any questions, yet Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God. He knew the subtext for Nicodemus arriving. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, which means he is one of the smartest people around. He's been in church his entire life, and he knows theology better than me and better than you. He knows church life. He should be able to answer basic questions of God. Yet when he comes face to face with who the man Jesus was, he can't rationalize what he's known and was taught about God and what he sees this man that he believes comes from God does, it just doesn't make sense to him. And so Jesus answered the question that he has not yet come to grasp to ask. You've got to be born again, my friend. Now, I'm, I'm, not, I'm actually wanting to teach woman at the well. That's how I got started on these four sermons. Uh, and so I'll fast forward the, the Nicodemus story, but um, Nicodemus really struggles with... How do, I, how do I take what I'm seeing Jesus do now and connect the dots to what I've always thought God was about? I always thought God didn't like those people and liked us better, and I always thought God really wanted me to follow. I always thought God was this, but this man that I believe is from God is showing me something different, and I don't know how to make heads or tails of it. And so Jesus answered him, "He must be born again. Of course we get the most famous verse of probably you don't even have to know the name Jesus to know John 3:16, right? Jesus answers Nicodemus with John 3:16. He says, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son." that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life for God. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. What Nicodemus seems to be struggling with if Jesus is answering Nicodemus' unasked questions is, I thought God was coming to condemn everything. I thought God hated those people. I thought I was supposed to hate those people. No, no, no. God sent the son because God loves the world. And the son did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. If you don't believe in me, he'll go on to say, you're already condemned. I'm not here to condemn. That's already taking, I'm here to save. I'm here to unite and bring together. And Nicodemus had to have had his head explode. Now, um, we, it ends with Nicodemus and it goes straight to John the Baptist in the next little bit. But um, we find out later that uh, we have a behind the scenes look at Nicodemus and he's in a room. And people are saying really mean things about Jesus like, Hey, let's go kill him, um, which is probably one of the meanest things you can say. And Nicodemus speaks up, courageously speaks up. And he says, wait a second, um, aren't we supposed to have some witnesses? Maybe we should all go listen to what he has to say. And they make fun of him for saying that. They, they say, oh, are you some redneck from Galilee? You know no prophets come out of Galilee. And they kind of dismiss Nicodemus. There's something in the way Jesus responded to Nicodemus that changed his worldview. That when it came time to speak up for Jesus... He was willing to do so courageously at the sacrifice of his reputation. Nicodemus, he's, he's a fascinating, fascinating character. Uh, a few verses later, at the end of chapter 3, we have John the Baptist. Here's what we know about John the Baptist. He baptized people. That's how he got the name, the Baptist. Uh, It was actually before the Baptist church formed. Uh, Just a little little bit of trivia for you. Uh, Baptist church doesn't form until like the 1600s. So long before the Baptist church was John the Baptist. He baptized people in the river. He was older than Jesus. In fact, he was Jesus's older cousin by a few months. And John the Baptist is extremely famous in Israel for baptizing people and calling out people on their junk. If you were a a Pharisee or a government official, you didn't like John the Baptist, but you couldn't do anything about it because everybody loved what he had to say. If you were a jerk to people, he would tell you, you should repent of that maybe. Maybe you should come over here and get dunked in this water and repent of those sins. He would tell people, you're a sinner, come get repented or come get baptized. And so he had baptized people in the river. Now you probably know the story of Jesus going and getting baptized by John. In this section right here, John the Baptist is baptizing people in the river. So we'll pretend the stage is the river. I I promise, Jason, I wouldn't leave my square. This is my square. So over here, uh, this is where John the Baptist is. John the Baptist is baptizing people. Uh, His crowds are there. John the Baptist has his own disciples. It's a big party. Every time John the Baptist shows up, people come from everywhere, Jericho, like countries next door, because they're like, this man knows something about God and we want to hear from him. But Jesus and his disciples have showed up and they're just upriver a little bit. And now Jesus's disciples are baptizing people. In the river nearby, and now there begins to be a fight. Like, okay, okay, who's the bigger religious hotshot around here? And so the disciples of John the Baptist go to John the Baptist and say to him, "Hey, uh, don't you care that like there's a bigger crowd over there? Don't you care that that he's he's got a lot of people following him? Isn't this kind of a big deal? I mean, maybe we should have like I don't know if they wanted a gang war. I don't know what they expected. Like, okay, we're going to go fight this guy, and then Jesus calls down angels. I don't know how that was going to end." But they were pretty concerned by it. And uh, John uh, had a long response. It's worth reading. Um, Again, I'm not here to teach. I'm here to teach the woman at the well. Uh, But he says in verse 27, John answered, and this was with humility, having not, uh, they're downriver from each other, but John the Baptist never goes and has this conversation with Jesus. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Everything I have is because God chose for me to have it. My fame, my popularity in this season, if I have it, it's because God chose for me to have it. If I don't have it, it's because God chose for me not to have it. Whatever you have has been sent uh, from heaven. Verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I've already told you guys, I am not the Christ, but I have sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He points to Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. It would have, it would have been so easy for John the Baptist to be like, you know what? I am kind of a big deal. And uh, people really think I'm impressive, and I teach the word of God well. And I'm going to say something mean about Jesus right now uh, and try to like, keep my reputation. But in his humility, he realizes two things. One is, if you have anything good, it's because heaven let you have it. Jesus, God, let you have the things that you have, and they're his. They're his to give back to him. And the second thing is, is that if Jesus is going to be the big deal, sometimes you have to take a step back and let him have the limelight. He could have argued and fought for disciples and having a bigger crowd than Jesus. He would have, you know, I guess lost that. Again, I'm thinking of a turf war that never happened. I would love to see like Avengers end game moment between Jesus and John the Baptist, but uh, it didn't happen. Uh, What it says instead is that after Jesus uh, realizes that the Jews have taken note that he has a bigger crowd than John the Baptist, he stops what he's doing and he leaves. That's how chapter 4 opens up. So I want to spend uh, about 10 minutes looking at the woman at the well, if, if you will join me in chapter 4. It says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. It's an interesting piece of trivia is that Jesus never baptized anyone. Uh, but what kind of bragging rights would that have been? Oh, you got baptized by Paul? Must be nice. <laughs> I got baptized by Jesus. Uh, verse 3 it says he left Judea. And so after this little moment at the river, he, he leaves Judea and goes again to Galilee. So, uh, for those of us who don't have the map in front of us, uh, he leaves the Southern part of Israel to go to the Northern part of Israel. And there's a middle ground called Samaria and everybody who would have made this trip almost always would have gone around Samaria, gone the long way, an extra Two days journey or something. I don't know. They, they would make every effort to get out of Samaria, but Jesus chooses in this moment to go to Samaria. Um, earlier when Jesus was at the feast, and there's uh, the, the Passover, uh, all these crowds of people, some from Galilee, are there, and they show back up in Galilee later. We'll, we'll, we would have seen that had I, had I finished that passage about the official's son. And they are there. Why are they not in Samaria? Why are they not at the river? It's because they chose to go the long way around to avoid the Samaritans, but Jesus chose to go straight up the middle through Samaria. And it says he had to, and he had in verse four, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. This is Jacob in the old Testament, Joseph in the old Testament, same Joseph who was sold as a slave in Egypt, Jacob, the guy who had the ugly brother and he stole the, 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 the blessing from him. you guys, you know, the ugly brother. Okay. All right. I'm just, Y'all didn't believe me. The Bible records him as being ugly, okay? Poor guy. Uh, And his brother stole it. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, he's tired. He sits down beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So it's high noon. It's 12 noon, sun's in the sky, and he's sitting on the well. Um, We find out later that he has sent the disciples away. And it says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. So she's just kind of doing her normal thing. She comes to pull some water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask uh, for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Um, I want to pause for a second and say a couple of things. Uh, John doesn't give this woman a name we don't we don't have that in Scripture. Um, I w- was interested to find out that our Christian brothers in the Greek Orthodox Church um, did give her a name and actually consider her a saint, which I thought was I didn't even know that. but they call her Fotini, which is a beautiful name, sounds weird in English, but Fotini means the illuminated one. Um, what they celebrate and the reason why they celebrate her is because she um, has eyes to see. Something's wrong with this scenario. There shouldn't be a Jewish man here right now, but she doesn't freak out by it. She's inquisitive and she asks questions. Um, this is the longest conversation in the New Testament, and it happens to be with a Samaritan woman. And the Jews had no dealings with Samaria. That's what John says in verse uh, 9. And here's, here's why. Um, The Samaritans, about 900 years before this, didn't exist. They were kind of a new uh, uh, class of people. They were a new uh, uh, ethnicity of people. And uh, about that time, uh, remember, uh, Israel has been uh, removed and taken captive by Babylon. Babylon gets conquered by a country called Assyria. Uh, Assyria is north of Israel. And the Assyrians were jerks. The Assyrians, they they have taken over Babylon. They've taken over the slaves of Babylon. And now they're moving into northern northern, middle Israel, and they're just taking people and they're doing whatever they can. If they didn't like your house, they'd burn it down. If they thought your wife was cute, they would steal her from you um, and it would do unspeakable things. And so to hate the Assyrians was like a no brainer. You would obviously hate the Assyrians, right? Assyrians are jerks. We hate the Assyrians, uh, the Jews would say. Um, except uh, some of them started having children and some of them stayed in that land. And so when uh, Israel is released from captivity and they come back from Babylon, and they move back into Israel. There's this new people group that they've never seen before and nobody's ever heard of. And they call them the Samaritans because the Samaritans are half Jewish um, and half Assyrian. They're not really proud of it, but they didn't have a choice in it. They didn't do anything to earn that reputation, but because of them being a different race, the Jews uh, would not have anything to do with them. And so with this woman, sees a Jewish man sitting at the well. She asks the question, like, why are you talking to me right now? Because you are supposed to hate me. Does it sound like uh, any, I don't know, can you come up with any uh, modern-day analog for supposed to hate someone because of the color of their skin? And you're like, I don't, but I didn't know I was supposed to. Uh, I see this dialogue played out all the time. That if you were a real Christian, you would, you would be on this side or this side. But Jesus here, here's, Jesus sits on that well knowing that this woman is coming and starts this conversation with this woman. And she's so confused by it. And so Jesus answered her. Her question is, why are you talking to me? Why, why are we having this conversation? And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, "Give me a drink"? You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now that phrase, "If you knew the gift of God," had to have been like a little—I don't know. I think the average person would have heard that, like, "Hey, listen, let me tell you about the gift of God." Because we didn't do anything to make God mad, and you guys hate us for no reason at all. We didn't do anything. We're just trying to get God to like us, and you—you you guys are jerks. But she doesn't answer with disrespect. She actually approaches him with with some honor and begins with, sir, in verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and he drank from it as did his sons and his livestock. And this is why uh, our our Greek Orthodox brothers, they they, um, celebrate her because she sees this man who doesn't have a bucket, doesn't have a rope, doesn't have anything. And she's like, let me ask you a couple of questions because something doesn't quite fit right. Um, Are you greater than Jacob? I wish Jesus would have answered that question. He doesn't. uh, Because I think if Jesus answered that question, he's like, am I greater than Jacob? I built Jacob. I I gave him a blood type, and I invented blood types. I could tell you, I I, I broke his hip. You know, that's another story. Jacob wrestled with God in the Old Testament. Uh, I could tell you which side he limped on. I don't know. Um, But he doesn't answer that. Verse 13, Jesus says, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of uh, water welling up to eternal life. So he's, he's going to focus on the, the thing that he's offering. She continues to focus on, but who are you? Are you greater than Jacob? you're a Jew, you're a man, like, who are you? Why, why are we having this question? She keeps asking, who are you? And he keeps answering, here's what I can do. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, I would like some of that water now. And so would I, as a matter of fact, so sir, uh, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water which would have been, I don't know, maybe it's a test to see if he even has, like, maybe he like whips out like a, like a backpack. He's like, and I can sell you this for 1099. And like, I I don't know what she's thinking, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's a fair question. Okay. Okay. You, you, you say you, you can get water. You don't even have a a stick. You don't have a bucket. Okay. Okay. Oh, it's living water. So you're you're telling me that there's living water. Okay. Well, how about you? uh, You know, I'll take some of that. Let's see what you got. I don't know. I'll never have to come here. I'll never have to thirst again. And so Jesus's response to her is, okay, go call your husband and come here. Now this is the first like culturally relevant thing that Jesus is going to honor, right? He should not culturally speaking, be sitting at a well, speaking to a woman in broad daylight, a Samaritan woman, a Jewish man, all of these things break cultural norms. And so now he's going to play to it a little bit. because, okay, let's finish the sales uh, transaction. Why don't you go call your husband and get over here? And so now they're going to have a real conversation about who she is, because she's been asking who he is. And the woman said to him, uh, in verse 17, answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Um, I don't know. Uh, ladies can probably speak to this uh, more than than guys. Guys, uh, I don't know. We like to like kind of strut around. Even if someone's holding a gun, we're like, oh, pfft, whatever. I've got, a, I've got a bigger gun at the house. I'm not scared of anything. Uh, ladies, they tend to be a little bit more uh, uh, risk averse. For a Samaritan woman to tell a man when it's only the two of them, "I have no husband," puts her at great, great danger. What, what if what if what if Jesus were a robber? What if Jesus? Just capture. What if Jesus? You know, I don't. This this man that she's speaking to could have been anything, and she's honest with him, and she admits, I don't, I don't have a husband, and so Jesus uses her um, humility, her honesty uh, to say, yeah, you know what. I know you don't have a husband. In fact, I know that you've had five husbands and you're living with someone right now who is not your husband. And a lot of people, and I've been one of them, I've taught this to talk about like she, you know, what were her morals or whatever. But I've heard people like answer this, like we don't know anything about her husbands. Maybe all of her husbands died of malaria. Like we we don't know why she went through, but what we do know, regardless of if it's moral reasons or or whatever that she was burning through husbands uh, is that she knows something about tragedy. She knows something about loss. She knows something about being in a vulnerable position. And here she is talking to the king of the universe without quite realizing who he is and is being extremely honest with him about where she's coming from. So verse 19, the woman says... uh, says to him, sir, I look, every time she begins, she begins with sir, a respectful tone. Uh, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I bet you do. I bet you, like he just told you everything. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither this mountain nor the one in Jerusalem, will you worship the father? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, but... The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For the father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. When she realizes that she's talking to somebody who must be from God, I perceive that you're a prophet. She asks the most pressing question she can think of because for the Samaritans who identify as followers of the Jewish God, all they want to do is worship God the right way. All they want to do is make their God happy. And yet geography is a big deal in in Jewish faith. And they are not allowed to cross the border into Jerusalem, much less go to the temple grounds. And so when she asks Jesus this question, it is a heartbreaking question of... All we want to do is worship God. All I want to do is make the creator of the universe happy with me and, and, and us. And you tell me I'm not even allowed to be in the place that that's supposed to happen. So we worship on this mountain and you say we're supposed to worship over there. Well, which one of these is right? And Jesus' response is, well, you know, we worship what's true over here. And, you know, you worship over here out of a passion and you try to overcome, you know, just like with fervency. But I'll tell you, the truth is this. The hour is coming. In fact, the hour is already here where none of that's gonna matter. Your geography and your proximity to God does not matter. The Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and truth, passionately with truth. We would say a Carpenter's Way, because of our motto, grace and truth, we would say that we would worship in grace and truth and spirit with, with all intensity, the intensity of singing a new song that we sang a moment ago, because God is worthy of our worship, but the truth and knowing who he is, and when we open up his word, we, we revealed more about his character and, and who he's calling us to be. And Jesus says, the Father is looking for worshipers who will worship him that way. And so... That had to have been earth-shattering to her, a Jewish man admitting that it's not going to matter which mountain we worship on. So in verse 25, the woman said to him, I know, and now she's revealing a little bit of her hope, which she's always hoped in. She didn't just come to this conclusion. I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes... He'll tell us all things. I believe one day the Christ will come, the promised one, the Messiah, the one who is supposed to rescue us. And she's talking about Samaritans in this moment, uh, who's going to rescue us. I believe he's coming, um, and he's going to answer that. I'm not going to take you at your word, prophet man, who told me about my husband. I'm not going to take you at your word. I believe Messiah is going to come, and he's going to answer all of that. And, And this is the first time Jesus without metaphor, without parable, without ambiguity, without double entendre of any kind, just clearly, plainly says who he is. And he chooses the Samaritan woman to say it. He says to her, I who speak to you, am he. He, Here's here's what I think. I think that Jesus um, is, is, is powerful and can do amazing signs. I think that he gets tired of people always wanting a sign from him, always wanting a miracle. Uh, and when the Samaritan woman has an honest conversation with this man who she doesn't yet know is the savior of the world, he chooses in that moment to reveal his true nature. I am the Messiah, the one you've been looking for. You say Messiah is going to come. He's going to answer all these questions. Ding, ding, ding. A plus my friend. And here I am. Ask away. Scripture goes on to say, and I don't, again, because I taught all those other passages, I can't keep going through the woman at the well, and she, she freaks out, and she's like, oh, I got to tell some people, and she runs away, and so our Greek Orthodox uh, brothers of faith, they call her the first apostle because she runs away and is the first person to start declaring Messiah has come, Christ has come, uh, go, let's talk about him, and so she goes and she tells everybody in town, hey, I met the Messiah, and they're like, What? Are you kidding me? And so uh, if you scroll down to verse 39, it says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him Why? Because of the woman's testimony, not because they saw Jesus do anything, not because they heard that Jesus raised the man from the dead. That hasn't happened yet. Uh, Not because uh, Jesus healed the, the government official's son. That's the next story. Not because he turned water into wine. They're Samaritans. They weren't at the wedding. They believed in who Jesus was because she gave a testimony of what she believed Jesus was. And he, she said, because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. And if you uh, take to the fact, if you're, if you're of the theory that the woman had bad morals, that was a lot <laughs> that he was telling her. Uh, and they're like, what? Someone told you everything you ever did and you want us to know about him? <laughs> like, I feel like you would want to not talk about that. Maybe this man is worth uh, listening to. It says uh, in verse 40, so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. Hey, uh, Jesus, you want to hang out with us for a while? That's not the first time uh, people asked Jesus to stay with him, because the first passage I read when I started this message was the Jews were so impressed with everything Jesus was doing, like, hey, why don't you stay with us? But it says that Jesus, knowing the hearts of man, ne- not needing anybody to testify about what's in the heart of man, did not entrust himself with them because all they wanted was more signs and more miracles. Here is a moment where Jesus does no miracles and no signs and just has this honest conversation with a woman who's being honest with him. And they say, hey, you want to stay with us? We would love to hear more about who you are and what you've come to do. The last time someone asked him, Jesus was like, no, I'm out of here. And he takes off to Samaria. Actually, he takes off to John the Baptist, then to Samaria. But this time, he does stay with them. It says they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days in Samaria. Everybody else who left uh, Jerusalem has already made it to Galilee, and he's staying two days in Samaria. If they knew the dirt was on his shoes, they would have just, like, thrown up in a corner. Like they, the, the amount of racial hatred in this, in this little area is remarkable verse 41, and many more believe because of his word, not because of his things, but because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. We we have heard him speak ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. He spent two days talking to them and they come to this conclusion. And it says after the two days in verse 43, he departed for Galilee. Now he finishes his journey for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. That, that's another passage that's always escaped me every time I've read this. He just finished an amazing like thing in Samaria. And John wants to let us know that he has no honor in his hometown. Why? Well, here's why. Because in verse 45, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. They don't know anything about the, uh, the Samaritan. They don't know anything about John the Baptist. They welcome him because, oh, here comes the magic man to do more miracles and to do more things. Jesus says, There's no honor for me in my own hometown because all they want is me for my things. But the Samaritans, they wanted to be close to Jesus because of who he was. They spoke truth, he spoke graciously, and he answered all of their questions, and he led them to a right worship of the Creator of the universe. Jesus is greater than his miracles. Now, you, you may be asking Jesus for a miracle, and I want to join you in that. Maybe you've got, like, a, a, a loved one, a child who, like, is wrestling with addiction. You're praying for a miracle to happen. Yes and amen. But Jesus is worthy of our worship, whether he answers the miracle, because he is, he, is, he loves you. He loves you. He didn't come to condemn the world. He, did, he didn't come to just be super famous. He could have done that. He didn't come to maintain the cultural norms and the racial lines and the political lines that that country was drawing. He didn't come for any of those things. He came to show God, creator of the universe, loves you. And he's seeking those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. And he himself, Jesus Christ himself, makes the path possible so that even in the truth that Jesse is a sinner... I have the mercy that Jesus paid for that sin, and I can worship him in spirit and in truth. So, as I finish four sermons, <laughs> uh, wow, that, that, that was a lot of material. Um, I just, I just want to have a few observations and just ask you to consider these for a moment. The first is this, that, that Jesus met all four of those people. Remember who they were? Uh, Nicodemus, John the Baptist, woman at the well, and the official son. Or uh, the official, rather, he didn't meet the son. Um, He met all four of those people exactly where they were on their own terms. He didn't have some like boxed message that he applied to all four of them. He has a conversation with Nicodemus about uh, how God really is and that he's not here to condemn the world. He doesn't even speak to John the Baptist. He just lets John the Baptist come up with his own conclusions. And when they're right, he leaves. Uh, he has a conversation with the woman at the well and identifies who he really is to someone who felt so far from God and alienated from God that he graciously, patiently met her every step of the way into the official son, seven hours away, he does the unthinkable, the miracle. And the man believes him for his word and the authority that he just says, your son as well. And for three and a half hours before it's even confirmed, he believes that Jesus met each of these four people exactly where they are on their own terms. His responses were custom to them. They were gentle, they were kind, and they were full of mercy and grace. If that does not sound like the God that you've been taught about, you've been taught about the wrong God. If you've grown up in a church where God is like super angry at everything you've ever done, that is not the God of scripture. That is not the God Jesus came to represent. That is not the God that we worship this morning. The God we worship this morning cares so deeply for you, John three sixteen that he sent his son to reveal himself to us and to die a sinner's death so that we can have peace and we can have uh, reconciliation with this father. Even though we feel like we couldn't get anywhere near the mountain like the Samaritan woman, he's like... You know what? Geography doesn't really matter anymore. Let's let's worship in spirit and truth. The second is this about all four of them that all four believed Jesus for who he was, not what he did. Even the government official. He didn't wait to find out that his son was better before he believed. They chose, and ever how you can choose to you know, control your own beliefs. They chose to believe him for who he was, to worship him for who he was. When he announced to the Samaritan woman, I am the Messiah you've been looking for, she's like, for whatever reason, it was like, oh, well, of course you are. Yes, let me go tell everybody. And she runs away. Um, I would just challenge us at Carpenter's Way that as we uh, worship through song, or if you're analytical, worship through the word, or if you're you know, physical and you've got to, you know, like run laps to worship, whatever, um, they, they, when you worship God, like, count your blessings, yes, but just look around at how good this creation is, how it meets your needs. We, we can complain about floods or whatever, um, but the truth is, is that we have everything we need. You have oxygen going in your lungs that Jesus has named the molecules of, I believe, from the beginning of time. And you're like, you are like, you just breathed in Fred, two and Frank, well, I don't know, I don't know. Like, like he has provided everything you need. You say, hey, I'm, I'm looking for a job. I pray you get a job. I hope you do. But how you, have you been surviving for the last two months? Well, you know, it's just like sometimes things fall in place. and you know. No, that's your father taking care of you. Celebrate that. Not, not for what he's done, but who he is. He's a good father who cares deeply for you as a child. These four people, they, they believe Jesus for who he was, not really just what he did. And in fact... Uh, uh, maybe I'm reading into the text, but when Jesus says that a prophet has no honor in his hometown, and then the next verse talks about just the things that he did, not really who he is, I think, I think that Jesus just like, wants a better relationship than us liking him for the things that he does for us. And we like him for how close he is to us and that he's a good friend. The third thing is this, all four of these peop- people believed in Jesus so much that they brought that knowledge to other people. They drug other people along. Nicodemus, he stands up for Jesus in the, the council later. I think that's chapter seven-ish, give or take, of John. Uh, and then we also see Nicodemus come back at the end of John, that Jesus has been crucified and they're laying his body uh, in the tomb. And Nicodemus shows up with 75 pounds worth of like anointing perfumes and stuff. Like This guy uh, he, he is telling people about Jesus and he loves Jesus. The Samaritan woman runs back to town, tells everybody. The official, uh, uh, the official with his son uh, believes in Jesus, and it says his whole household believes in the goodness of who Jesus is. John the Baptist decides, I must decrease so that he must increase. You guys don't have a turf war. Go follow Jesus. And a lot of John the Baptist disciples go and follow Jesus, so much so that John the Baptist later gets uh, arrested found guilty of whatever crimes he was. And just for the mere amusement of the officials has his head cut off. Like that's the punishment that John the Baptist gets. He decreased quite a bit so that Jesus could increase, but all four of them, they, they believed in Jesus so much that they drug other people along. And so the fourth thing is, this is really just a question. I would ask you to consider that as, as we think about who Jesus has revealed himself to be to us, is how can we Grow in appreciation and satisfaction of Jesus apart from just the things that He does for our family. What can we do that would increase in us an affection for our Savior? What songs? Just turn your little worship factory up on high, and you're like, and you're just like, I've got to praise. I don't know. I'm just screaming it out. People think you're yelling in the car. They don't know you're singing to the Lord. Uh, Like what? What happens, what activities are you a part of that stirs up your affections for the Lord? And I would encourage you this week, just make a choice to do that a couple more times. Just spend time with him and just say, thanks for always listening to my prayers. You know, he's never ignored you one time. He's never had you on call waiting. He never like, you know, you know, someone leaves you on red and you're like, hey, I know you have your phone on you. Why don't you return my text? God has never done that to you. He is always there. He's faithful and he's true. What can you do to stir up your affection for the Lord? I uh, have taken two really long walks uh, around the back of this uh, driveway, and i walk all the way down to that gate. I can tell you how many nasty looks I get when I'm back there, because they're like, who is coming my way? And then I turn around, and they're like, oh, okay, whatever. And I'll go back down there, and I had one guy, he like chased me with a, like a weed eater, like he's going to come confront me for walking through the property. I'm like, hey, man, he goes, oh, hey. And I turn around and walk. And during this, all, all I'm thinking about, I'm just looking around and like, I'll, I'll see a bird trying to build a nest. And I'm like, golly, man, that poor bird, he's going to die or something. Like, I don't know what's going to happen to this bird. Like maybe a hawk gets out, I don't know. And then sure enough, like he finds a little hole and he finds a little piece of grass and he flies away and he's good. And I, and I think, and this happened to me just the last week, I think, oh, just like God cares for the sparrow, right? Sermon on the Mount. Surely he cares for me. And I'm, I'm confronted with the fact that God is providing for me. Jesus is greater than his miracles. I want to pray uh, for you and I, I just challenge you that you would apply that that you would that you would do something this week that stirs up your affections for your Lord and Savior. Um, after I pray we'll watch the cue together. Uh, Father, uh, this morning we thank you that, that you're good and you're gracious. Um, we, we, we take note and are thankful for the things and the blessings that you've put in our life. Uh, Father, give us eyes to see even more of that, the things that we've taken for granted, uh, and that we would, we would thank you for those blessings. But Lord, help us this week to just trust you for who you are, take you at your word, and to just rest in the graciousness that you would choose to have a relationship with us, and, and that you love us. You love us despite our reputation. You love us despite our egos. You love us despite um, our mistakes or our uncertainties. You love us despite our fears. Um, You just love us. Help us rest in that this week. We love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.